We hope you enjoy listening to this podcast of St. Louis on the Air, brought to you by University College at Washington University. With undergraduate and graduate programs, part-time, evening, and online. University College at Washington University, offering world-class education within reach. Many of you, I'm sure, remember Farah Fazal. She was a member of the Five on Your Side news team until she moved on in 2016. Among the places she's moved on to are Syria, Somalia, Pakistan, parts of the world that are among its most dangerous. I'm happy to welcome Farah Fazal to our studio. So nice to see you. Hi, Don. So good to see you. Welcome home, I guess, Uh, in a sense. You know, you never really... So it's really interesting because I cannot tell you that I went to high school here. (laughs) But I can tell you that I never really leave here. There's this... uh, intense um, need that I have to keep coming back somehow to St. Louis. Well, it's great to see you, but you've been all over the place since leaving in Minneapolis for three years, close to three years, I guess. And what in the world are you doing in the the other parts of the world? Uh, So, you know, I, earlier this year, I really felt a calling um, Mm. to go do some work in Syria and Lebanon. Freelance work. And I, and I had, so I'd been filing for many of the European uh, communities in the networks. And I, I realized that as the war kept going, uh, and you know, it has been going for seven years, if you think about it, Don, an eight year old child in Syria has never known uh, a life without double barrel bombs, has never known a life without chemical attacks, has never known freedom has never known an ability just to walk down the street mm. without violence. So uh, it, it touched me that um, that there were not enough of us there. And so I decided actually to embed with uh, the Syrian American Medical Society. These are doctors and nurses mm. and therapists. And for the first time, actually, they took a mental health therapist with them. And they went uh, to the war zone, two miles from the Syrian border, uh, to the Bekaa Valley. And so mm. the Bekaa Valley is this extensive, uh, very rural area. But this is where many of the Syrians tried to escape the war, too. And, and you know, the interesting part is that many of the people who escape there are not really escaping because they've gone from mm. one war Hmm. Almost literally to another. Hmm. The, the Lebanese don't recognize the Syrians, so they're not allowed to work. They are not allowed uh, health care. Uh, there's no infrastructure from the United Nations. So they live in these settlements, if you will, these shanty towns hmm. surrounded by sewage, um, and many of them are children. The conditions, we've seen pictures, yeah. obviously, and they're mm-hmm. just, uh, just astonishingly abominable. And... You know, I I think what to me was so touching is that 70 to 80 percent of the people that I met uh, were children Mm. uh, and children who were completely traumatized. On my first uh, day there in the Bacal Valley, the doctors had set up this sort of makeshift uh, office, if you will. Mm. And, And one of the first people to walk in were two parents with a baby. Baby Azam couldn't breathe. Mm. He was nine months old. And they said to the doctors, please help us. Mm. The doctors had four walls and no oxygen. I mean, they were just trying to, to, to help in some way. It, ultimately, uh, they said, you have to take him to the hospital. I mean, he's going to die if you don't do that. Mm. They said, we're Syrians. We can't get into the hospital. Mm. They don't help us. Mm. 
One of the, the Syrian community members who were helping these doctors took drove the, the, this uh, these parents and baby Azam to the hospital. The hospital said, "You cannot pay. Mm. You're Syrians, and you cannot get care here." And so they have a baby who's probably hours away from dying, and were turned back. Ultimately, the Syrian American Medical Society paid. Of the bill. Well, people like you, uh, and, and there are a few uh, Western <laughs> uh, correspondents there, uh, are telling the story, but the world is not responding. I mean, the world is really kind of turning its back on what's going on in, in Syria to, to a very large degree. I'd love to hear from uh, your listeners about why that is. Uh-huh. Uh, you know, my sense is this. Um, you, you may remember Marie Colvin. Um, Marie Colvin was... A, do- a documentary on uh, Marie is, is going to be aired this weekend, I believe, on HBO or Showtime. Right. Yeah. It's called A Private War. Mm-hmm. Uh, Marie was one of the conflict journalists like me who really believed that regardless of whether you wanted to hear it or not, mm-hmm. that some of us had to go bear witness mm-hmm. and some of us had to keep telling the story. Ultimately, I really... It has been my experience, both as a journalist and as a human being, and people who I have communicated with along the way, have told me that we don't feel connected. We don't. We're we mm-hmm. don't feel connected to these people who are like you know ten thousand miles away from us. That's a job that is is incumbent upon me to make mm-hmm. you to help you care, to help you understand why that kid, that eight year old kid matters, yep. why you should care about the million people who are suffering um, in in the Bacal Valley, why you should care that half a million people died in the last several months in a war that has been going on for seven years. So, you know, by telling those personal stories, and that's how we connect, right? You connect with me because you can look me in the eye and say, well, mm-hmm. I, I get that you care, so maybe I can understand from your perspective why you care. And I think ultimately when we can help people tell stories, personal stories of who these people are, that they're not this big glob of people who just sort of you know, don't want to be home. They just mm-hmm. want to escape. They are people who actually really care about Americans. Mm-hmm. But, you know, they're being universally rejected yeah. when they they flee the country and cross the Mediterranean and, and try to get into various countries in Europe. Uh, basically, the gate is being slammed shut. And nobody wants them. And, Don, this is what I heard over and over again. Mm-hmm. They kept telling me that um, they were forgotten people. And, and you know, this is not – remember who these people are. Uh, you know, they have they have survived – many of them, the most brutal of regimes. Mm -hmm. The Syrian government does not have a a very good record of human rights. So, you know, when you hear, for example, I met a man who uh, was a teacher uh, in in the Bacaw Valley, and he he became a teacher. That wasn't his training. He used to be a a doctor. (laughs) But uh, when he escaped to the Bacaw Valley, they realized they had all these Syrian children who were not allowed to go to Lebanese schools, and what were they going to do with them? So he decided to start teaching them, and he spoke really good English. Mm -hmm. And he he said to me, you know, I want you you to know um, that I am somebody who really understands um, what what freedom is like even in this small little tiny place where we have no freedom this is my freedom because i was in a torture chamber uh, you know when when the the syrian government kidnapped me they uh, shocked my genitals um they beat me i wasn't going to live mm-hmm. 
so the fact that I am living, that I've escaped, is a big deal. Mm. Um, and so this is freedom. Mm. So, you know, when you, when you hear stories of what these people have been I have I talked to many people who survived chemical weapons attacks, mm. mothers. And many of the people that I met, Don, were mothers and um, children because they were able to escape. Their husbands and their partners were either disappeared or in torture chambers or dead. I remember a guy who said to me, uh, who he brought in his uh, child to this little makeshift uh, center that the doctors had. And when I asked him his name, he said, I cannot tell you my name, but can I tell you my story? Mm-hmm. And he said that uh, he, he was a taxi driver in Syria, in Damascus, and he was driving one day. Men stopped him, men in uniform stopped him. They took him to a place where he doesn't know where it was. It was a building. It was dark. And... Um, and they put him in, in there. He, he remembers hearing people screaming and yelling. And then they came to him and said, uh, your kidney is not good. And he remembers them taking him somewhere and taking out his kidney okay. <laughs> and then throwing him on the side of the road. So these were the stories that we yeah. heard every day. And these are not even the most graphic of the stories that I'm telling you. How do you, how do you get in there? How do you embed yourself uh, with any kind of an organization in there? You just don't hop on a bus and drive into Syria and say, here I am. I want to start talking to people. Uh, it is exceedingly difficult to get into Syria. Uh, and it is extremely dangerous uh, to get into Syria. Uh, and so I had to have sources. Mm-hmm. I had to have people who I could trust and who wanted to trust me. The white helmets are hugely important in that area and really do and they, help. And they are, for those who don't know? So those the white helmets are really basically a humanitarian organization. They live in communities in Syria. And so when there are bombs that are dropping, it's the white helmets who are the first responders who try to dig people out of rubble, uh, who try to save babies. And more often than not, they are the people who also get killed. And if you remember a few months back, uh, the, the the Russian government doesn't like the white the, the white helmets very much, so they've uh, you know they launched a campaign to, to uh, <laughs> decertify them and uh, you know make them less credible. But ultimately, these are men and women from these communities who care about their communities and want to. So the white helmets are, are one resource, but but truly you have to rely on people on the ground. You have to make the contacts. And that's ultimately how I got in. I was on the ground on April 14th. And you may remember what April 14th Mm -hmm. was of this year. The president ordered uh, the airstrike uh, in Damascus. And above where we were, were airplanes circling. Had that escalated, we would have been ground zero. Um, We were two miles from the Syrian border. So, you know, it's difficult to get in, but ultimately there are people who want to help people like us tell stories. And so they put their lives at risk so that we, we can get in. How about getting out? It's just as difficult. <laughs> and so how you get in is how you get out. And that's why I don't really talk about how I get in there, because there are journalists who are actually right now um, using the same routes. You don't want to expose the, uh, the route, yeah. Yeah. And, and actually those journalists, uh, you, you know, once you get in there, Don, you're, you're not safe. I mean, the Syrian government tracks us. They, they know our 
you know, social media pages. Mm. They know yeah. how we communicate. So we are tracked from the moment that we get in there. You know, now, look, I, ha- I was very lucky. I was able, before I left, I met with some generals who were good sources of mine, mm-hmm. um, who helped me prepare, if you will, for a war zone, mm-hmm. um, who said to me, well, here's, uh, you know, uh, action 101. You're mm-hmm. going to figure this out, and I, we, we need you to stay alive. So this is what you're going to do. Were they protecting you? They were actually sources in the U.S. um, who knew where I was because I stayed in contact. Mm. But actually, they really ultimately couldn't protect me. There's not not this web that we go in with that we're we're protected. We take the chance – to be able to tell the story. So it's it's not uh, you know you you don't you have to understand that when you go in um you do that mm-hmm. at, at a great risk. Are you going back? It's a great question. Hmm. Um I don't know yet. You know, I think one the thing that we perhaps people might not understand as much is that we tell you the stories uh, that we hope that you want to mm. hear and that you need to hear, uh, but those stories take a toll on us too. Mm. Yeah, and and I carry those stories with me. There are many stories sitting in my phone that I haven't <laughs> been able to tell yet. Sitting in your phone, what what a different uh, day this is in terms of gathering information. And from the time that you <clears throat> used to be in Somalia, right in nineteen ninety two, it was certainly not sitting in your phone. It no, was in your notebook. No, that's right, exactly right. And that was twenty five years ago, I guess. Let's talk a little bit about Somalia because you spent some time there. You were with KTSP, a television in Minneapolis, very large Somali community there. Huge, yes, hundred thousand yeah. people in Minnesota. Hundred thousand, largest community, obviously in the country, mm-hmm. and uh, that was the reason, I guess through that television station that you went to Somalia. Tell me about that. Uh, I, uh, we made a proposal to the station, and I will have to tell you that this is absolutely, uh, you know, to the station's credit, KSTP-TV mm. in, in Minneapolis, many local stations would not just let you go to Somalia mm-hmm. <laughs> to tell stories of the communities that, are, that they serve. But, but, but our managers and my managers were committed. What, what we l- knew is that because so many people who lived in Minnesota had family in the refugee camps in mm-hmm. Kenya and Somalia, one out of five of them had family there. And so we were able to make the case that this was a local story for us. Mm -hmm. They were families. And I actually went to find a toddler, a three-year-old girl. Uh, Her mother uh, had to leave her behind when she got refugee status. And by the way, only 1%, less than 1% of all refugees will get refugee status somewhere. So she gets refugee status. She has two sick children, and they tell her, you can go to America, but you cannot take your baby with you uh, because the baby is not uh, vetted yet. The baby cannot answer questions, and so you cannot take the baby. So she has to make a decision. Do I stay in this hellhole, this refugee camp where food and water and safety are, are you know, not possible, or do I go? She decided to go, and she left the baby with her grand with her parents. So three years later, I now meet her, and she tells me she has this baby in the refugee camp. So I went to find the baby who was three years old. Her name was Anfa. It was at the time when the president signed the first refugee ban, um, the travel ban, 
So we were able to see while you were experiencing it here, uh, the, the machinations of the travel ban, mm-hmm. we were able to see what was going on on the ground in the refugee camps, in, in, uh, at the, the consulates, at the embassies, at, at the airports. Um, we found Anfa. Wow. It's not like, you know, you go to, uh, uh, it's not like King's Highway in Chippewa, you know. <laughs> there are no real places uh, in, in a refugee yeah. camp. You yeah. can actually um, find people. But we found her. And when I found her, I, uh, I had taken some video with me of her mother saying, I had said to her mother, give me a message. You know, you want, want me to take something to your daughter. And she had recorded a message and I recorded it on my phone and she'd said, uh, Anfa, don't worry, Anfa. Uh, you know, we're going to come and find you. We're, you're going to bring you. Don't worry. It's going to be okay. So Anfa is looking at this video of her mother talking to her. And, you know, you have had this moment done, perhaps as a journalist. Uh, there is a moment where that intersects completely with your humanity. Mm-hmm. And as Anfa is looking at this phone and her mother's voice, <clears throat> she um, bends down and she kisses my phone. Oh, wow. Mm. She misses her mother. Um, I, would, I would think, yeah. So you can sleep at night. I want to tell you that it took seven months. We, When we came back, we um, went to the area where the mom lived and we... Uh, talked to the congressman, and ultimately, seven months later, to the day uh, that we last met her, she came to America. Very oh wow, what a what a dramatic story! Is there any place people can find these stories that you've been filing? Or, or do you absolutely have posted online, for I, instance. I do. I have all of my. You know, we've um, digital journalism has become extremely important in war zones. Mm-hmm. So you can find all of my platforms, and I'm I'm posting there constantly, and uh, and I'll leave that with you. Um, so Good. I, well, I'm on Facebook, I'm on Twitter, I'm on Instagram. I'm we'll, we'll put really links anywhere. on our, our website at stlpublicradio.org. But back to Somalia. Somalia is a failed state. It has been for a long time. That's another hot spot for you. Again, navigating uh, these these refugee camps and just society in general has to be extraordinarily difficult. Uh, that at that particular time when we went two years ago now, uh, it was ex- Al Shabaab, the terrorist organization, uh, had been extremely active. So as I was interviewing a minister from uh, the the government there were bombs going off outside of his house. Um, we, it was extremely difficult to get around. Um, we, we, there were barricades everywhere. There were soldiers everywhere. We were being followed everywhere. Uh, and I remember our station had allowed us to hire security, so Kenyan and Somali soldiers, uh, to be able to protect us. Uh, and, and they, they can't always be trusted. No, and no that's exactly right. Yeah. So we... We had to keep moving every 20 minutes. And they said to us, and I remember saying, oh, I just need to record this one little stand-up. And, and they said, yeah, no, <laughs> you cannot do anything. You need to move now. It, it was difficult to operate and do you know, work in that environment, but yet we, we were able to actually meet people who were um, at the height of famine. It was, this was at the, at the height of the famine um, two years ago. There were people starving to death. We saw children starving yeah. to death. And you know what that's like, having been there in Yeah, 92. I covered the famine there back in 92. We only have a minute left. You've talked to some of these young people from Minneapolis who went to Somalia to join al-Shabaab. Uh, very quickly, can you give me some sense of what their motivation was to do that? Two two big things. One was uh, that when children who are born here of Somali parents feel the need to fit in, 
and so uh, they're they're different when they go to high school. Uh, they they speak a little differently than when they speak at home, and ultimately they don't feel that they belong anywhere. And El Shabab creates the opportunity for a brotherhood to belong somewhere, and that's the key. In how do they get there? I mean, it it, it costs money to get that part of the world. It's interesting how Al Shabab and ISIS recruit people um, because they fly you there. Uh, they give you money. They uh, they make it easy for you to go, and this is why our why we should care because ISIS is constantly recruiting in the United States in your community. What's next for Farah Fazal? Uh, it, it has always been the North Star to tell stories, untold stories of people who are mm. forgotten, and it always will be. Yeah. Well, it's so great to see you again. Congratulations on some great reporting. I mean, very very dramatic stuff, and uh, we'll put that uh, link to your sources online to, uh, on our website at stlpublicradio.org so folks can, uh, can, can track you and follow you and stalk you I'd online. love it. I'd love it. <laughs> Fair Fazal, thank you once again.